A lot of folks like keep him in a manger, don't they? But he's not in the manger, folks. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter number 1. And verse number 18. Matthew, chapter 1. And verse number 18. The scripture says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise... When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Bless this word now, Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Now, this most controversial scripture is one of them because it says that Christ was virgin-born, which goes against all natural, uh, you know, scientific knowledge that uh, there is no such thing as a virgin birth. There must be a male sperm and a female ovum. And so what you got here is a uh, issue that you either believe or you don't believe. But don't you notice what some of the some of the smartest men around claim to be? Here's what they said: A God who can be seen in the limp form of a convicted criminal dying alone on a cross on Calvary can surely also be seen in an illegitimate baby boy born through the aggressive and selfish act of a man sexually violating a teenage girl. Now what does that mean? Interpret that. Well, here's the interpretation of it. And that is that uh, as far as the actual event is concerned, that's not the issue. The issue is the idea. It's the thought involved. And that uh, the New Testament writers, when they wrote about a virgin birth, were simply putting across a, a, a kind of an idea that we can relate to in the sense that it was through that idea of a virgin birth that we can have meaning with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a man who denies the virgin birth. He was the Episcopal Bishop of Newark. His name was John Shelby Spong. Now, this came from Wikipedia. Now, here's what Harry Emerson Fosdick said in 1922. He said, shall the fundamentals win? Question. Fosdick called the virgin birth into question, saying it required belief in, quote, a special biological miracle. Well, it is a special miracle to be able to walk on water. It's a special miracle to raise the dead. Here's the issue with these people. They refuse to believe in miraculous supernatural power. They refuse to believe it. So therefore, uh, anything that relates to something that uh, lies beyond the laws of physics as they understand it, then they totally and completely reject it. Now, this is not something new. It's been around a long time. 
And there are men standing in the pulpit today, they call them men of cloth, who deny the virgin birth. Now, Robert Funk, founder of the Jesus Seminar, have you heard of that crowd? An author of Honest to Jesus, who has asserted, quote, we can be certain that Mary did not conceive Jesus without the assistance of human sperm. It is unclear whether Joseph or some other unnamed male was the biological father of Jesus. It is possible that Jesus was illegitimate, God help us. And that's pure blasphemy. And this comes from Robert, Robert Funk, the founder of the Jesus Seminar. But now you see these men approach you as academics and as scholars and supposedly they have a, uh, they have a, uh, they have a knowledge of, the, of, of history and the Bible and so forth that we don't have. Truth of the matter is, they give you no real physical evidence of any of it. It's all speculation. But notice how this kind of thing works now and when they deny the virgin birth. The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. This was published as the Holy Blood, Holy Grail in the United States is a book by Michael Bajant, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln. The book was first published in 1982 by Jonathan Cape in London as an unofficial follow-up to three BBC Two TV documentaries that were part of the Chronicle series. The paperback of the book was published in 1983 by Corgi Books, a sequel to the book called The Messianic Legacy, originally published in 86, and then so forth and so on. Now, the thesis of it is the authors put forward a hypothesis that the historical Jesus married Mary Magdalene had one or more children and that those children or their descendants immigrated to what is now southern France. Once there, they intermarried with the noble families that would eventually become the Merovingian dynasty, whose special claim to the throne of France is championed today by a secret society called the Priori of Zion. Now, if you have a situation like this, then what need is there in a virgin birth? There is no need if you're going to be married to Mary Magdalene. Now, if you have never heard of the Gnostic Gospels, those most of you have heard of them. They were found, discovered in 1947 at Nag Hammadi. These Gnostic Gospels have a lot to say about Mary Magdalene and her relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Gnostics, of course, were not Christians, never were Christians, though they claimed to be Christians. They were nothing in the world more than a kind of a Christianized paganism of the world of their day. But in any event, a lot of people like to believe anything but the Bible. But now here's what happens to an enterprising man who takes the uh, work, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and he produces the Da Vinci Code. And this was in 2003. It's a mystery thriller by Dan Brown. It is Brown's second novel to include the character Robert Langdon. The first was his 2000 novel Angel and Demons. The Da Vinci Code follows symbologist Robert Langdon and cryptologist Sophie Nouveau after a murder in the Louvre Museum in Paris causes them to become involved in a battle between the Priory of Sion and Opus Dei over the possibility of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene having had a child together. So what he does, he takes the Holy Blood, the Holy Grail, and then he spins a yarn and puts it out in the form of what's called the Da Vinci Code. Now, it'd be one thing if he did this, but here's what you need to understand about this. The Da Vinci Code has sold over 80 million copies. 
It's been translated into 44 different languages. Now, when you start translating a work into different languages, that means that it's far-reaching and it's popular. This is what's happening. 44 different languages. If he only made a dollar on each one of the copies of the 80 million, how much money would this man have made? Well, he's a multi, multi, multi millionaire. And he got it from what he, of course, the foundation was laid, holy blood, holy grail. So what are you trying to say? I'm saying this. I'm saying that anything that comes out like this, that cast doubt or any kind of a shadow on the scripture and on the identity and person of Christ, they lap it up. And the reason they do is because in the human heart, there's a darkness that wants to reject the light and they want somehow or another justify themselves because they all identify together. We're all in the same boat together, they say, essentially. So, you know, judge not that you be not judged. That's one of their favorite passages. You'll have that quoted to you. Uh, they'll destroy you, but if you say anything about them, judge not that you be not judged. That's, of course, is the way it operates. Now, why do I mention this? I mention this because before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a false Christ. And the false Christ is going to relate to the people of his day. And he doesn't have to be virgin born. He just needs to be one of them. And uh, in the sense that they call Godhood today, uh, you know, he can be accepted in their midst. And so the Lord Jesus Christ stands unique to every other, uh, every anything else on the face of this earth, uh, individual, angel, cherubim, seraphim, whatever. He's different. And therefore, everything is compared to him. And he's the judge of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect, perfect, perfect. But they want to tear him down. And so they do this in a number of ways. And this Da Vinci Code is, uh, is one. Now, what is the Da Vinci Code? Well, Leonardo Da Vinci was an accomplished artist. And the painting of The Last Supper, you'll notice that uh, the, it's supposed to be John with his head on the shoulder of Christ. But uh, that's really, if you look closely at it, according to the Da Vinci Code and according to uh, Dan Brown, that is Mary Magdalene with her head on the shoulder of Christ. How many's ever heard that one before? You haven't heard it? Well, that's what's going on. This is why it's called the Da Vinci Code, because Leonardo is sending forth the idea that he subscribes to Mary Magdalene and Christ and so forth. Now, a lot of work has gone into this, folks, and I do this tonight to, to, to acquaint you, okay, so that you'll understand what's going on out here in the world. Why do people go to the universities and come out of there agnostics and atheists? This is one of the reasons. Uh, this is one of the reasons. Now, the, some of the oldest writings on earth, some of the oldest, would be the book of Job, 1900 BC. That's old, folks. That's very old. That predates Moses by 500 years. That predates the Pentateuch by 500 years. Moses about 1400 BC, David about 1000, so forth. So 1900 BC would put it back in what's called a time of the Epic of Gilgamesh. How many's ever heard of that? The Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, the Epic of Gilgamesh is Gilgamesh is a, a kind of a giant creature, comes from the Sumerian tablets, uh, and comes from what's called the Cradle of Civilization, and tells the story of a flood. All right, the story of a flood that goes all the way back over 2,000 years before Christ. All right, here's the thesis, and that is that the Bible 
simply borrowed from all of these pagan sources, all of these pagan stories, and you have a Bible that was put together to create a, I guess you might, I don't know what you'd call it. I mean, the Bible is not one book written in 66 over a period of nearly 2,000 years. But the idea is that the Jewish people borrowed all of this from around and then they created the Bible. So what does that do for what you believe tonight? What about Christ? Was he virgin born? Well, you have Semiramis and you have over there back in the book of Genesis, you'll find uh, who was the first one that called the whole world together uh, to rebel against God? Nimrod. The Bible said he was a hunter of souls, all right? And there's a, quite a legend that goes back to that. But here's the point. The point is that if they can come from a thousand different directions and cause you to doubt your Bible, then what they have done is undermined your faith and they literally uh, destroy what you believe. Now, what have they based that on? Well, once again, there is absolutely no fact in it and there's no evidence for it. Some of the finest minds, and this is a different study in itself altogether, but some of the finest minds that have ever lived have gone to, ex to, to the uh, greatest extent and dealt with all of this stuff. And so what do they find? They find it's fabrications. They find it as someone taking information out here, putting it together, and coming to his own conclusion about it, a private interpretation of it. There's not one word that's ever been written anywhere out here among any of these people that would cause me to doubt the Bible. I don't doubt the Bible. Here's one of the reasons I don't doubt the Bible. There are many, but here's one. And that is that the Christ that was born 2,000 years ago is alive in me tonight. He saved me. He came in. And whether another person ever lived on this earth and ever did get saved, I'm not going to change it with me. I know whom I have believed. I know what happened to me. I was in darkness and he brought light. I was weighted down with a load of sin and he lifted that burden and he wrote my name, the Lamb's Book of Life. He put something in me that was not in there before. Sometimes I shudder. I really do. I shudder and I quake when I think of how I lived before I was saved. I really do because I lived a godless profligate life before I was born again. But then he came and saved me. You remember what Brother Roger Lee preached about Sunday night? You remember that woman that stood behind him and would not so much as stand before him and face him with her head down? She's weeping and she washes his feet with her tears and her hair, which is her glory. A woman's hair is her glory. And so she gave everything she had to the one. And the Lord said to the Pharisee, to whom much is forgiven, the same loveth much. Did God forgive you of a lot when he saved you? Yes, he did, folks. Yes, he did. And there's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no way to fabricate, to change, to take away the real meaning of what it is to have your burdens, your sins lifted off of your soul. And this, of course, the Jesus Seminar, they totally miss this because they're trying to find the historical Jesus. And they'll never find him. It's not the historical Jesus, although history in no wise contradicts the fact that he lived. It's that living Jesus that you need. It's the one seated at the right hand of the Father that he's able to save. So the virgin birth, the virgin birth is assaulted in a lot of different ways. Now, if Christ was born of a virgin, and he was, 
then it was one event that had never happened before and it'll never happen since. Never, ever, ever. You see, the seed comes from the man, all right? But the woman had a seed, but it didn't come from a man. In Genesis 3.15, it's called the seed of the woman, all right? So bruise the head of the serpent. So this seed must have come from God. It was the seed of God because the Holy Spirit impregnated her. Now, how did he do it? Well, he said, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. It's the same glory that, was, uh, that the children of Israel had leading them in the Old Testament. Glory, light wrapped this woman. And it was the light and the glory of God that impregnated her. A spirit being brought life into flesh. You say, what a thought. Well, what did God do when he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life? A spirit being brought life into a, into a body of flesh. Uh, there's a fellow on the internet who likes to mock that. And when he talks about, uh, he, mock, he mocks the fact that angels could uh, produce giants in Genesis chapter number 6. He forgets that an angel is a spirit being. Yeah, be careful. Spirit beings can do something to flesh, folks. Yes, they can. You've got to be awful careful with it. You can, it, it, you, you can uh, when the Antichrist comes and he, and he is, uh, you know, when he shows up, Satan is cast down, Revelation 13, he dies. The Antichrist dies. And then on the third day, he's raised from the dead. And when he comes up from the dead, on the third day, mimicking the resurrection of Christ, he's Satan incarnate. That's right. Satan comes in to his flesh and takes him over. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he was born, according to the scripture, in the fullness of time. All right, that was 2,000 years ago. Rome was in power. The two legs, the Roman, Roman Empire, the Eastern Western Division of it, scripture was being fulfilled. All right, the thing about scripture being fulfilled is that, that it can run its course, then stop. And then 2,000 years later, complete the fulfillment. It'll be filled full, as some say. You've got to watch that, because when the Lord got up and read Isaiah chapter number 61, there at, at, uh, at uh, Capernaum, he stopped. And when he stopped, he stopped right in the middle of the sentence, because what he was doing was uh, he was showing you the difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And all it is <laughs> is just splitting the sentence and separating it where he came, he'll come the second time. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter number 5 and verse number 12, here's why we needed a virgin birth. In Romans, chapter number 5 and verse number 12, here's what it says. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All right, so how did death come into the world? By the woman or the man? It came by the man. It came by the man. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. All right? So therefore, the curse that comes down upon mankind was not brought through the woman, which fully qualifies her to bear the sin bearer. The woman, therefore, was fully qualified and capable of bringing one into the earth as she bore Christ and not pass the curse onto him for he was not cursed. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, here's the way it says it. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Notice the part of the same. Now many of you in here tonight, you've heard all of this before. 
but I'm just, you know, refreshing your memory. He took part of the same. What part? He took all the part that, hadn't, that did not have to do with the curse and with original sin. He was not born with original sin, which we are. Romans 8 and verse number 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, notice the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Then in Philippians 2, 7, he said, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in a sinless body, and he was himself sinless, and he never sinned any of the time he was upon this earth, not one time. But he would be the sin bearer, for the Bible said God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto, the, unto them. And he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So when Satan assaulted Christ, came against him, the Lord Jesus Christ made himself vulnerable to Satan's attack because he wanted to meet him in combat. That's what happened. He met him in combat. You see, when he lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, he and Satan locked horns more than once. Oh yeah, yes they did. Yes they did. And when he was on the cross, Satan came after him with everything that he had to try to destroy him. And if he could have, of course he couldn't, but if he, if he had destroyed him, then he would have destroyed your Savior. But that couldn't happen. And so Satan threw everything that he had against him. And he that had the power of death threw that against him. And he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Therefore, Satan took his pound of flesh from him. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died on that cross, gave himself to God, then he took everything Satan had to offer. Satan had no more to give. Satan had no more he could do. And when he rose from the dead, Satan was stripped of his power because he had already died. And he can't die again. You see what I mean? He can only die one time. He couldn't die again. So Satan could do no more to him. And the Bible says to destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Satan has the power of death. He still has the power of death. If you are an unsaved person, you don't know the Lord, then you are in the hands of Satan to do with as he pleases. If he wants to kill you, there's really nothing that can keep you from being killed. But more than likely, he'll use you. If you're a Christian, Satan cannot take you and do as he pleases with you. There's two special powers that have been given to people in the church. And when they were given 2,000 years ago, they were given to the apostles. And the apostle says to turn such an one over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh. That means that Satan cannot by his own will take you and destroy you if you're a Christian. But because of the judgment that they find over there in 1 Corinthians, if you're turned over to the devil, and nobody's exactly sure about what goes on when that happens then when that happens, Satan can kill you. He can kill you. He can take you from this earth. But if he does intend to kill you, he'll have a reason for it and he'll have a place for it. And more than likely, he won't take you. He'll use you. Satan likes to use people. Oh, yeah, he likes to use them. Oh, yeah, because you see, once he has taken you from the earth, then there's nothing else that he can do with you. You're finished. So he likes to use people. He likes to use Christians that have uh, 
that have uh, been filled with uh, demonic power. They can't, uh, Satan can't touch the spirit. The spirit's born again. But your soul and your body is two entirely different things. Remember that when Christ died on the cross, he died on the cross. His body died. Now think about that for a moment. But his spirit went into the hands of the Father. You know why? Because it is an utter impossibility for God to die. And the spirit of Christ was the spirit of God. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And his soul descended into the heart of the earth. So there's the tripart nature, body, soul, and spirit at the cross. His body dies. It lays in the tomb for three days. His soul descends into the heart of the earth. And his spirit goes back to God who gave it. Now on the third day when Christ arose from the dead, the apostle says that he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So when his spirit descended back to this earth, it is that God raised him from the dead. In other words, he raised his body from the dead. His soul came back up out of the heart of the earth and his spirit of life entered back into his body and now body, soul, and spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, now has been declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. This is God putting his mark upon him, you see, declared to be. And he can never die again. Never die. The body will never die again. Died one time and never die again. So when the Lord was born 2,000 years ago, he was born to die. That's sad if you think that he came into the world to show us a way to live, you know, and make a new world and bring peace to the earth, but that's not what he came for. You remember when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword? That's what he said. He said, I came to set a brother against a brother, a father against a son, to separate family members. That's why I came. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great divider, not the uniter. Yes, he is. I know that goes against conventional thinking, but it does. You see, there's something about Christ that will join you with others that believe in him and love him, that want to fellowship with him. You have a common spirit. But if you don't, it'll separate you. There's no greater separator on this earth than the Son of God. This is why Christians who really believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, and what I've been talking about tonight, they join together. They always have. They come together. Now, they may not agree on all points of eschatology. They may not agree on all points of church polity. They may not agree on uh, other things that, uh, you know, that people uh, hold dear and so forth. But as far as the person of Christ, if that doesn't unite us, then we have no unity. The person of Christ is what unites us, folks. The Lord Jesus Christ is what pulls us together. Amen. And if we can come together over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can work with a lot of these other issues that people don't necessarily agree with. Amen. A lot of folks have different opinions about a lot of things. And the Apostle Paul talked about him. He said, one man esteemeth one day above another. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That's what Paul said in the book of Romans, following about chapter 16, 15, somewhere in there. He said, be, 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 be satisfied in your own mind what you believe. The thing about it is, if you grow in the Lord, if you mature in the Lord, you're going to change some opinions over a period of time. You're going to do it. It's just part of it. And uh, that's showing that you're growing, showing you're learning. And uh, that's a good thing. So the person of Christ is what makes all the difference for us. Amen. I mean, he makes it. Now, don't you look at two genealogies here. Look at Matthew chapter number 1 and verse number 12. 
Matthew chapter number 1 and verse 12. If you notice that Matthew genealogy is a royal genealogy. It has to do with the king. And in verse number 12, after that they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Now if you notice the word Jeconias shows up here in chapter number 1 and verse number 12. Now if you don't know much about the Old Testament, when you read that, you'll just fly right by it. It won't mean anything to you. But if you study the Old Testament, you'll say to yourself, now wait a minute here. Wasn't Jeconias, didn't God say something about him in Jeremiah? Here's what he said in chapter 22 and verse 30 about Jeconias. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now wait a minute. Have you thought about that? How many of you read that? You see the book of verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David's the king. When you talk about the king of Israel, folks, you don't talk about Solomon. You don't talk about Ahab. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't talk about, uh, you don't talk about uh, any, any other king. You talk about David. It's the Davidic kingdom. He's the king. And he's the, he's the king where he said, I will, I will give you the sure mercies of David. There was something about the throne of David that was important with God. All right? Now, this is one of these things I'm trying to show you tonight that is so important that a lot of people fly over it and don't realize how important this is. Look at it carefully. Verse number 12, you've got Jeconias. But in Jeremiah chapter number 22, verse number 30, because he was such a reprobate, God said that none of his seed will sit upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Well now, what are we going to do here? Because is not this the genealogy of the king? Well, there's another genealogy in the New Testament, and it's found in the book of Luke, chapter number 3. Okay? And verse number 31. Luke 3, verse 31. Which was the son of Malia, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Matatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of who? David. All right. Is this the same David? Yes. David the king? Yes. Yes. But you see, he has a son here in this genealogy that is traced through Nathan, not Jeconias. Why is that important? It's important because the person born through this genealogy is qualified to sit on the throne of David, but not the one that is born in, in the genealogy of Matthew. Okay? Matthew's genealogy is a genealogy of Joseph, who was the son of David. But so was Mary. She was also a daughter of David. But you see, Joseph's genealogy comes through Jeconias. So therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ had to be virgin born in order to qualify to be the king of Israel on the throne of David. There's no other way it would work. He had to be virgin born. And so you get the, you get the genealogy in Luke chapter number 3 of the virgin born through Nathan, the son of David. Now, 
this is one of those things that it doesn't just somebody jump off. You've got to study the Bible a little bit to see this. But when you see it, you say to yourself, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Therefore, the virgin birth not only had to do with the fact that Christ was not born with original sin. God was his father. But it also had to do with the fact that he was fully qualified to sit on the throne of David. Whereas he would not have been if he had been in the genealogy in Matthew chapter number one. Now, where do you get that? Well, you just get it from studying the Bible. That's all. I mean, this is one of the, those little blessings. It's, it's like a little handful on purpose that was left for Ruth out there in the fields of Boaz. God's always got a little something for us if we, if we, uh, if we get in there and dig around a little bit. Uh, the Bible always has its rewards if you'll study the scriptures uh, to show yourself approved to God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's another reason that I believe the Bible. Now, who would have thought to write that? Think about that tonight. Who would have thought to write that? Now, in Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14, Therefore the Lord shall himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does the word Emmanuel mean? It's a Hebrew name. See? God with us, right? God is with us. Now, I understand that in an abstract sense, you can say God is with us tonight, you know, and there's no Emmanuel here personally. But when it's referring to a specific person, Emmanuel, we know good and well that the Lord Jesus Christ, did he not say, the angel, did he not say that you shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Yes, he is. And he's with us tonight. Praise God. Amen. I hope, honestly, if I can, I don't know what else to say to you tonight other than this. I hope I never cause you to doubt your Bible. I hope that never happened. I hope that never comes out of me. I hope that I encourage you to study the Bible because there's great blessing in it and reward in studying the scriptures. And I hope that you will establish the Bible as a firm foundation. I, I, am, not, I am not a Christian tonight because I'm encouraged by the world to be a Christian. You know, I'm a Christian tonight because I had a personal encounter with a living Christ. Now, this is what the church has gotten away from today. They, they have. They don't preach the new birth. They don't preach it. But if you have been born of the Spirit of God, folks, you're never going to be flim-flammed and moved off of it because you know how your life changed. And that's what the old-timers left us. That's what the generation that went on before us has left us. That's the kind of preachers that we've had in this pulpit now for years and years and years. They get up here and they preach the new birth. And that's so important. Have you been born again? Now, Sunday night, Alexander's his name, but I think the X-A-N, you go by Zan? He goes by Zan, bowed his head right back here. And he was saved. Hallelujah. A lot of you might not have known that, but now you do. He got saved. Praise God. Amen. Amen. That little girl he's sitting next to, his arm around, that's Victoria. Amen. I've known them since they were a little, little girl. Their sister Emma sitting there. Known them for a long time. And uh, he got saved. Have you, have you done okay this week? Amen. Is what? Better than ever. All right. Hallelujah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Amen. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's a wonderful thing. I believe the Almighty 
is going to bring the spirit of evangelism here into Temple Baptist Church. I do. And you're going to hear a whole lot more about it when we get through Christmas and the holidays, when we get into January. God is going to use Temple Baptist Church, and I praise God for it. Father, bless your word, time we have together now. Bless what we've said in the holy name. Amen. Folks, if you don't know a dear brother to me,